the, the, the title of the class is Sing Around Corners, Capturing Your Church's Future. And, and, and those of you who've come to this event over the years, I tend to, to go more of the church leadership and congregational life kind of way, uh, rather than, there's so many great theologians and biblical scholars and everything like that. I feel like the contribution I can kind of make is on the other side of the equation. Um, and we only have 45 minutes, so what I'm, I'm going to pass over uh, fluffy introductions. I'm going to pass over um, theological bases for what I'm saying. Uh, if you're not familiar with me, my name is Tim Spivey. Um, I teach on the religion faculty here <coughs> as an adjunct. So uh, I have a doctor of ministry from Abilene Christian, a bachelor's uh, MS and an MDiv from Pepperdine here. And uh, our church is pioneering kind of a new way of trying to do the congregational outreach thing. And the way that we kind of came to it was by trying to see, okay, not what do we see is going on in the world right now, but where do we think the world's going to be going? Um, I think the, the hard part with trends, and we'll talk about this in a second, is that trends typically by the time you notice them, it's already too late to adapt to them. It's a little like the stock market when you, when you see a stock take off or you hear somebody on television say, hey, this is going to take off, then by that point, uh, it's already passe. And when we were doing our big construction project, I decided, because I was glad for punishment, instead of just doing the normal, horrible path through a construction project, that I was going to uh, spend that time, I was going to just go all in. And so I went to a, uh, a sequence of certificate programs in everything from strategy, management, finance, it, at different Ivy League schools. And I would commend those programs to anybody. Uh, because they're available, the, the, the one that I'm going to talk about a lot, the Columbia program, is not open to everybody. Um, you do have to apply to that one, but other ones you can just literally get on and, and sign up for them. And if you can pay, pay the money and they give you a big discount as a pastor, uh, they give you terrific backgrounds in finance, strategy, things like that. Uh, and so I did one in strategy and my major professor was a woman named Rita McGrath who is kind of the world's leading expert on um, what, what are called inflection points. As a surfer, I used to... Uh, watch sets of waves and you could kind of tell by the first wave what the set was likely to look like. Uh, so you could see the first wave and a lot of people go, oh look at that wave. And then most people might look at the one right behind it. But if you were a seasoned surfer, you could kind of tell by the first swell, okay, this is how this set is probably going to develop over time. And so what she made her mark on the world uh, in, was being able to see these things, you know, way down the road. And she didn't necessarily do it the way that you would think people would do it. Okay, we're gonna do a bunch of studies and, and figure that stuff out. Um, she had a very simple uh, way of looking at things, which is to ask basic kinds of questions, like what problem are you solving for people? And then do you really have a good sense of what people are, actually think, as opposed to what they say they think, which is a different uh, way of looking at the problem, right? So if you read, Newspapers, magazines, stuff like that, it'll say, hey, the Washington Post today came out with a study saying less than 50% of people um, consider themselves active in a church or something like that, right? So you go, oh, no. You know, it comes from this source and people are saying this, and so I'm going to take that as some sort of gospel and then work my strategy and everything around that reality, okay? And what, what she was saying was, and I knew this by just be, having been a young person myself uh, and having and working with college kids all the time. If you're talking about younger people particularly, uh, you are not going to get 
really truthful answers from them on a survey like that. They're just not. So it's like if you came up to me, let's say that um, I, was, uh, I was at a women's conference and somebody came up and asked me, okay, Tim, what, what, what do you think about the role that women play in the life of the church? Okay, well, I'm going to probably, because of the context, because of who might be asking me, I'm going to, to uh, embellish maybe what I think. Uh, if I had an opinion, like let's say I was a radical, I'm not, okay, but I'm, let's say I was a radical chauvinist sectarian, I'm probably not going to say it there, right? I'm going to go ahead and make it seem neutral. I'm going to do all of this, right? So if somebody comes up and says, hey, do you go to church? Uh, a student is likely to say, uh, no, I'm, I'm not. Uh, or, or they're going to say, yes, I am, because they don't want it to reflect poorly on them, right? So what she noticed was that people, there was always this idea that, uh, uh, that, that say, Gillette, the razor company, who had 90% of the razor market uh, just about 10 years ago, now has 30%. And the idea Gillette had was, well, what men want is a very classy shave. They want a fancy handle, and they want quality blades and those kinds of things, right? Well, there were some young guys out there who realized, you know what, uh, razors are, and, and we've got mostly men in here, so let's go ahead and just say what the truth, right? You go, you go to buy razors at the supermarket. What's that like? Is it a pleasant experience? I mean, these days are locked up, right? You're paying 20 bucks for like four razors. They're expensive. They're hard to get to. You have to call somebody to come unlock the case so that you can get them out, right? Uh, and so these guys go, you know what? I just don't think it matters that much. I think if we could get them to them for free where they didn't even have to go to the store at all, uh, I think that they would, we'd, we'd have some. So Dollar Shave Club comes along and Gillette, even at that point, still thought, no, they're wrong because we've done studies asking, do you like a handle that does this or whatever, right? So they ask them and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. These guys come along and then after them, then Harry's comes along, takes another chunk of the market. And by the time that Shake and Gillette actually get around to it, they, um, you know, the, the, basically they're now at half of the market and these guys have just stolen everything from them. Um, one of my... Uh, one of my favorites uh, of this, the kind of the process of denial, is from Rand McNally. This is 2006. It's not long ago. Rand McNally, the map maker. Paper maps. You remember those? They had one in a car. Uh, the owner of Rand McNally was being interviewed, and he says, anyone who thinks that old-fashioned folded maps are going away should think again. It's kind of like saying newspapers are going to disappear. There's going to be some changes in how they're used, but people still want to open them and read them with their coffee. Same thing with trip planning. People will continue to want to be able to consume maps this way, even if they use handheld maps or atlases together with handheld devices or the internet. All right, that's 2006. All right. Um, I can go ahead. I'll give you two more quickly, and then, then we'll move on. Uh, by the way, Rand McNally was acquired the next year. Uh, by a distressed asset investment firm, Patriarch Partners. Um, you go past that, there's an, a famous interview, you look it up on YouTube, where um, uh, Jim Balsilli, the, the, the CEO of BlackBerry, is being interviewed. And this is in the early 2000s, I think so, five or so. And the person interviewing him is saying, hey, the new iPhone, this device that Apple's come out with, are you worried about it? And he says the same thing. He, he sounds so ridiculous. And so he looks at their stock, he laughs it off, 
says that no, people want a physical keyboard. They will never want a device with no keyboard, right? And he laughs it off. He basically says, no, we're not worried about it. They'll never touch us. It's, it's an example of hubris that is just phenomenal to, to watch. You're mind boggling now. And of course, the iPhone really changed the world as, as we know it. Another one of my favorites is when Reed Hastings went to Blockbuster Video, uh, owner of Netflix, and tried to sell Netflix to Blockbuster Video for $50 million. Okay, 50 million. Now, during COVID, they hit 300 billion market cap. I think today they're about 100, but because uh, they just crashed magnificently um, over the last month or so. But they could have had it for 50 million. And the owner, there's one blockbuster. We have one Oregonian, I think, in the room. Okay, but that, there's one in Bend, Oregon. That's the last blockbuster. And, and while Netflix turned, I mean, changed everything, right? And out of that came Hulu and YouTube TV and every streaming service you can think of came out of that place because they were in denial and they weren't able to, to comprehend the idea that, yes, we want them to want this. Does that make sense? We want them to want to come to our store. But what they want to be able to do is watch it at home or be able to get the, get the service that we're providing the way that they want to receive it. Now, you're going to feel the bristles going, oh, I see, we're going to go highly consumeristic here and all that stuff. Not necessarily. But I do think you have to go... Okay, what problem are we solving for people? And what I always bristle when I hear people, like, like the razor companies think they're in the razor business. They're not. They're in the people business. They happen to sell razors as the way that they relate to people and provide value to people. In the church world, the question is, okay, what problem are we solving for people? And the old answer used to be maybe something like, hey, salvation. Okay, well, that's... But if they don't see it as a problem, then you're not really solving the problem for them, right? It is a problem. They just don't know it's a problem, and they don't care. So if you're aiming at a problem they don't care about yet, then you need to rethink if you're going to try to gain ground. Okay, what is it that they actually do uh, care about, okay? So what I want to do with that as a brief um, introduction is just start with the premise that we don't change reality uh, by wishing things. You, you, you have to start with where things are at, and then you work out from there. And if, um, if you decide that you're going to go ahead and say, okay, here's where I see the trend going, so I'm going to ride the trend, that's usually behind. Okay. It's the equivalent of throwing where the receiver, maybe a little ahead of the receiver, but he's going to run past the ball. All right. So as we do this, I'm going to give you basically now a toss salad of stuff that these are findings, okay, based on... Some research I did for her, using her methods uh, with regards to the church world, okay? Um, so I'm going to start uh, with, with uh, kind of two, maybe this idea that we're, you know, uh, it's not a really delicate illustration to use, but uh, I've used it before here, and, and they haven't kicked me off the program yet, so I'll use it again. Uh, grandma's house, right? You go to your grandma's house, and it smells a little weird in there. You go in, it's like, okay, it smells like mothballs, or it smells like, something else in this house, right? Now, she can't smell it, though. You can smell it. She can't. So you're, her, she's nose blind to it. The, the best thing that we can do for ourselves, I think, is to find fresh perspective. Not to be critical, okay? Not, not to be critical, not to be um, 
uh, you know, mean or anything like that. But to actually, if you want to know, then the phrase that Rita would use is snow melts from the edges. You have to get out to the sides and the edges of your church and out really into the community and kind of get some, uh, a good sense of what it is that people are really responding to. So I'm going to give you four rabbits that we tend to chase. Uh, and again, this is a toss salad. Take the best you can get from it. Four typical rabbits that we chase. Attendance. If I had a dollar for every time I've been asked already this week, what's your attendance? Um, that's a dying metric. Let me explain to you why. People are going to church less, so that by nature is going to deflate attendance figures on its own. But what you might actually be doing is experiencing growth, and you won't know it because the attendance trend is going south, even as your influence is going up. So in California, I know the old stat now is like 1.8 Sundays a month is, is the national average. I bet in California it's one out of five, one out of six. So if I get up and let's say I have 300 people in attendance, that tells me I've got a lot of sets of 300 there. So I'm not really preaching to 300 people, I'm preaching to 1,000. I'm just getting them in 300 person increments. It's almost like having multiple services that meet every week instead of right there, right? So most people uh, and most churches have more people than they think they have. Okay, so there's some good news for you. Hope you like that one, all right? Um, your church is larger than you think, all right? And that includes, by the way, people that are uh, under your influence. We use that term, people under influence, pui. Uh, people under influence, all right? So how are you making an impact uh, and stuff? So people will, will point that one out. What's your attendance? Okay, that's a, also a very kind of Southern metric where uh, the finger's on the scale a bit because you got six months of the year in, the, in Michigan where nobody's going outside anyway. They got nothing to do. They're, gonna, they're coming to church is easy. Or it's culturally, that's the thing to do. Right? You're in Wisconsin, right? Yeah. Okay, it gets cold in Wisconsin, no? So uh, it gets a little bit easier. Or culturally, the winds are so much in your face that, uh, like maybe in Wisconsin or certainly in San Diego where I am. Uh, on Easter, I'm competing with Coachella Music Festival. Uh, last weekend, we had a bit the Coachella equivalent for country music stagecoach. It's, it's there two weeks later. So uh, they're, they're, everything around us is a festival. Uh, wine tasting event, a, a, uh, I mean, it's almost like they have to walk through a garden of forbidden fruit just to drive to the building and get out and then come. So I can either sit there and say, no, what they want is a razor handle that's luxurious. You want to be here. You need to be here. And I can spend my energy on the treadmill, right? Or I can think about, okay, what is it? What are they telling us here? What are they trying to say to us without saying it to us? Um, expertise. I've already alluded to this one. Um, people in university context, I'm, again, I'm, I'm a professor too, so I'm not, I'm not dogging on professors. But uh, they don't do things, okay? You have to be snowmills from the edges. If you're not in the trench and you're not actually leading a church right now, it's very hard to get good reads on things based on polls, and especially right now. Okay, this is a different ballgame than, than anything I've seen before, certainly in my 26 years of doing ministry. Trends, as I said, because you're already behind them. Uh, so, for instance, right now everybody's tripping over themselves to uh, figure out what... A lot of people are still trapped trying to reach millennials. They're, they're gone at this point. You, you need to be focused on 
the generation that's 18 to 24 right now, and they're very, very different, okay? They are much lower drama, in my opinion, tend to lean a more conservative than, than the millennials. They're kind of reacting to that. Uh, they're the people who were um, probably impacted much more profoundly by COVID than the other generations were. And they've got some thoughts about that that nobody's really cared to ask them yet because their parents were busy arguing about it. But they have strong opinions on that deal. Um, uh, they, they don't, they're not as social media oriented as the millennials were. So they're on it, but they're more like, I make TikTok videos and things like that, but I'm not obsessed with it. I don't, it's not a news source for me the way it is for the millennials. I have fun on it. I game. I play TikTok. I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in what the news has to say about things, right? So what we do is we read the Washington Post and the New York Times to try to understand them. See the problem? So if we want to understand them, then we need to spend time with them. So, um, and then the last one is issues. And I'll, I'll tell you why this one's dangerous, uh, and I'll, I'll allude to this later. Issues, the problem with that is uh, it goes back to the ones who give us those issues are these people. When I left here, I thought the single most important issue that everybody was thinking about in church and outside of church coming to our church was the role of women in the church. In 26 years, I have been asked about that one time. That's an issue if you want to make it an issue. Um, if I want to bring it up and I want to do a series, sermon series on it, or I can just make the changes like I would a, a traditional, like a, like a, a traditional change, keep the anxiety levels low, and do it organically, and then and then it tends to go a little bit better. But issues pump anxiety into the room, uh, and a guy um, named, named Edwin Friedman. Have you guys read a Failure of Nerve? I highly recommend that book to you, Edwin Friedman, A Failure of Nerve. Leadership in the Age of the Quick Fix. It's a little dense. Spend some time with it. But it's, it's honestly, it's the best leadership book I'm aware of other than the Bible. Bible's number one. That's number two. What's the name again? Edwin Friedman. He was a Jewish rabbi and a therapist. Um, and so, uh, like at Abilene, I became familiar with him when I was going through ACU for my doctoral degree. And I use it now in the class that I just finished teaching called Christian Leadership in Times of Chaos here at Pepperdine. Um, in there, he uses the illustration of a gas-filled room. So you have a, a room full of natural gas, and somebody lights a match, and it explodes. Did the match blow the room up, or was it the atmosphere in which the match was lit? Right. So what issues do is they fill the room with anxiety. Okay, they pump the gas into the room. And when you say, all right, we're going to spend, you know, uh, a year working through the uh, racial reconciliation issue, things like that. Now, before anybody picks up rocks to stone me, let me just say, there are times that you have to do that. But my view is, those things are best dealt with out of season. Okay? You talk about race, not when George Floyd happens. You talk about it when George Floyd hasn't happened yet, so that when George Floyd happens, the room has no gas in it, right? And you can talk about it without blowing the whole room up. So, if you're a non-anxious leader, which is what Friedman focuses on, uh, being a calm, kind of non-anxious presence in the middle of, of chaos, then you, you don't have a problem talking to your people about race or tithing or the things that everybody gets all their feathers ruffled about, and they don't either because you're not doing it and kind of creating the atmosphere in which all that stuff um, <clears throat> uh, happens. All right. Um, 
qualification or an expertise. I'm not saying don't use it. I'm saying it's a tool. Okay, it's not everything. All right, next up, four superpowers. If you're looking for things to acquire to see around the corner. Um, in, the, in the business world right now, everybody's tripping over themselves to be agile, being quick. You can make quick decisions, you can move quickly. Churches are not known for their speed, okay? Changes take a long time, uh, and, and a big reason for that is because we are set up in such a way that things are typically done in committee and no one person has the ability to make any change by themselves, okay? Now, there's a certain security that comes with that. However, a different professor of mine uh, at Columbia, he was an old Brit guy named Willie Peterson, uh, and it was a, a class I was taking from him on uh, implementing strategic change. He says, <clears throat> we're sitting there, and these are some of the sharpest people in the world. I've got like the chief creative officer, JetBlue's in the room, I've got Google people, I've got, hey, I run the Saudi oil reserves, and I mean, these kind of people, and then there's like Pastor Tim sitting in the corner, <laughs> it's like I don't belong there. But they go, uh, he gets up and he asks, the first day of class, he goes, why? Why are there brakes on cars? And we're like, so you can stop. We're like, no. Right. Because, so you can go fast. Right? And I was like, yeah, I guess he's right. You know, uh, brakes are really there so you can go fast, not so you can go. And we think, I think in church world, we got that reverse where we think the brakes that keep us from crashing in reality, it's like trying to drive the emergency brake on, the way that we're doing it. Whereas they're really there to protect us from the disaster or whatever, to slow you down when you really have to stop, right? You don't go over the mountain road cliff like I almost did on my way down here. You have to be able to stop. So the, your, your, your organizational speed and structure needs to match your goals. And the leadership, that, the leadership polity that you go in, I'm going to go ahead and throw my, uh, this, is, this one upsets some people, and that's good. I like that. I don't care. But the, the leadership is supposed to serve the church. The church doesn't serve the leadership model. Okay? It doesn't. Um, you know, when, when the church starts in Acts 2, there are no elders. <laughs> All right? Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have them. But I'm convinced that when Paul goes around and asks him to point those in every town, it's not because he thinks that's the biblical pattern for every church everywhere, but because that's the best way to get leadership done when he's already come planted the church and it's leaving in his wake. But you don't see examples of those guys really doing a lot together, other than Ephesus. You do see that. Like the Ephesian elders and him, they part and they kiss and they love each other. But this leadership polity that doesn't serve the church or decision-making processes that don't serve the church aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing biblically. So instead of the model being the biblical part, we need to look at the function as the biblical part. How do we get that part done in a way that allows us to move quickly? Because if you can't, uh, I was listening to, I was talking to somebody who was unveiling a big strategic endeavor uh, just last evening, I was talking to him, and, and, and he was talking about all these great plans. I go, the plan's great. The problem is to get the first step done, over under for you getting that done is five years, you know, Church of Christ. Five years. And by the time you do that, you may have a totally different strategy, totally different goal. Uh, I mean, the whole world may have changed by then. So if you can't pivot 
Uh, so I would encourage you to look at your, your structure, look at your polity, look at the people uh, involved, and, and ask yourself, what can we do to move faster, to be quicker? Okay. Uh, and sometimes that's, people will do that control through negation kind of policy documents and stuff like that, but that'll take you forever. So just be aware of that. Um, uh, I think the question becomes, okay, do we, is there a compelling reason that, that we need to make this decision as a group? No? Okay. Then make it. Go. Uh, and then be one if, if there are mistakes don't don't say well there you go so that we knew we'd make a mistake so now we now we if we meet as a group we won't make any mistakes and fall into that logical trap um, often this is one of my quarrels with the uh, the idea of you know hey having one you know having a senior pastor and and uh, not doing things in a very flat way um, I think it's horribly naive to think that a church is more exposed by having a dominating senior pastor than it is a committee of dominating people. <laughs> I, I find that uh, to be a much easier way to, to embed systemic problems because now you have to get rid of five of them or seven of them than one. So the best way is to have nobody that's sick and toxic, right? And you have a group of healthy leaders all working together in humility and without power dynamics and honoring the Lord. But this, this thing right here um, is one of the chief Achilles heels of the churches of Christ. Inability to move quickly. We are turtles on the freeway right now. And uh, until we can limber up a little bit and be able to move quickly, I think we're in trouble. Courageous leadership. I heard it put last night, swing for the fences. Um, I want to be careful here because you know I don't mean go throw yourself off the roof of the temple, uh, you know, to impress people. But what I mean is, there are a lot of churches and people where, where they think um, because they're operating on a basis of fear rather than courage, that trying to do something big and bold uh, is is risky or putting the church at risk, and therefore it's unfaithful. Okay, I really don't think that holds up at all biblically. I think from a biblical standpoint, usually, when God calls people to do things, they typically are pretty, you know, aggressive. They're not, you know, hey Moses, hey, this year lead two people to freedom, and then after that, maybe next year you can go to three people, and, 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 and then about four people, five people, but we just need to go slow, we need to be cautious, uh, we don't want to be reckless, okay. I've seen very few, I've seen some. But, but very few examples of speed-based recklessness in the churches of Christ. Like none. I have seen churches almost literally fossilize where they are because they haven't done anything, you know, in, in years. Um, so this goes back to just simply having faith and being, being uh, bold. Emotional intelligence, uh, I'll talk about a little bit coming up. That means you have the emotional ability to empathize, to understand people, and to kind of, if, if I put two things on a table in front of you and say, okay, which one of these would go better? better uh, would your community be more likely to be drawn to? You should know the answer to that and be able to bat a thousand on it almost every time. Just, okay, if, is this more your city or is this more your city? You should be able to answer those questions. Um, and then even within your church, um, this I have seen a lot, is... 
um, leadership teams getting up in front of the church and announcing a change, thinking the church, church will love it when they hate it. Now, sometimes that's the gas-filled room. It's not the change they hate. It's change period because of the atmosphere. But sometimes, um, you know, everybody's like, why are you, why are you bringing this? Everybody's happy and everything's moving along and we're doing well. Why are we, why are we making this change? Well, we thought you'd like it. It's like a person who doesn't know their kid well giving them birthday gifts. You know, it's, it's really hard to, uh, to be able to get that. Hey, come on. It's my mom and my dad. Come on in. So emotional intelligence, okay? And then health is the other. So health is um, we, we, we don't, uh, we are not involved in, in leadership meltdown. And he- what health does is two things. It allows you to move quickly because there's high trust and it doesn't, uh, it allows you to be strong when you are being blown by the winds of the day. All right. So there's, there's fast and like if you use boxing terminology, most of the time lightweights are viewed as the fast people. And then I could give you um, an example of a fast car that would crumple in a heartbeat if it was in an accident. And then there are trains. They go fast too, and if they hit something, it doesn't, they just, something is going to lose probably that's on the other end of that. If they hit a car, it's over. That's kind of what you want to be. You want to be a train, moving quickly, heavy, strong at the same time, but that's all, has a lot more to do with um, the health of the body than, than, than other things, all right? Um, skills. So we've done... Rabbits not to chase. We just did uh, superpowers to acquire. Okay, these are skills. Okay, things that you, and anybody can, skills are easy to develop. Um, A humble apologetic. Um, One of the things you'll notice right now is that the church is getting walloped in every corner. Oh, they're anti-science. They're uh, uh, anti-gay. They're anti uh, women, they're anti-Christians or anti-this. I have a friend who uh, has some influence online. He got on the line the other day and he goes, if your religion, if you need, if your religion uh, forces me to make choices, women to make choices about their bodies, and maybe your religion isn't very good. Right? That's the mentality out there. Um, and I don't hear a lot of counter voices. I really don't. Um, if you listen to some, the reason that young people aren't interested in the church is because it's too political. Listen, and the same people will say the reason that they don't go to church is because they're not involved politically enough in climate change and things like that. Okay. I will just go out on a limb here and say it's probably neither of those. I'm based on my experience. Um, most people want from the church what they can only get from the church. I'll ask you guys, what can only the church do? What, like, what do we do better than anybody else? Love people, perhaps. Yeah, we, we can. I've certainly seen that. I think, I think the love of the body of Christ is deeper than most. Now, they don't know that. Um, and in fact, they may have a church woundedness story or something like that that, that goes with them. But you're right. What else? Community. Community, okay. They can get that elsewhere, maybe. Connection with God. A connection with God. Yep. Good. How? 
Like some people will go, hey, I can, I can go, I can, I can be with God on the mountaintop. I can be God, be with God anywhere else. I'll, I'll, I'm sorry. Through the gospel. Okay, there you go. You, I have never seen a person. I'm sorry. What were you saying? Through people who form the church. It is through people. Here's where I'm, I'm going to go with the, the things that we do better. We connect people to God. We can help them find God. We know the Bible. So our church, and what we've experienced the best results of with the young people, teaching the Bible. I know. Oh, Bible's boring. Well, you can make it boring if you want. I got kids texting me, like 18-year-old kids texting me about Constantine because they were reading the Bible, which led them to church history, which led them to, so they're buying books about church history, they're reading this stuff, and now they're wanting to explore more about church history in general. When, I, when we do our midweek like Bible things uh, where I'm teaching just a basic Bible class, half of that room is 24 and under. Half the room. Okay. Uh, when uh, they're reading their Bibles every day, not like you know the adults they pick them up once a year. Every day. Uh, my wife's in the room. Am I am I exaggerating here? Nope. Okay. And the reason is that's something they can get from us they can't get anywhere else. They got friends at school. They can get community there. Or at least they think they can. I do. I'm agreeing with you. That the church community and the body of Christ is a deeper fellowship. I get that. But they don't know that. The one thing they understand they can only get is the Bible, which is a great way to introduce them to the gospel. And I would recommend that as you teach them the gospel, you use the Bible to do so. It keeps you honest, and it keeps and it intrigues them. Um, so when I say a humble apologetic, let me give you an example of, of what I mean. Um, uh, I will say with our church... Uh, They'll, they'll go, oh, you know, uh, not our church, but people out there in society. Hey, you know, you guys, you know, are always talking about how God is victorious and we live in victory and blah, 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 blah. But that's not dealing with the real world. And I, I reject that in some ways because I don't know why negativity is more real than good things. Like, they're both real. Uh, and you take the good and the bad. But um, you have to have a, a clear reason for why you have the faith that you have and be able to converse with people in a humble way that allows them to be open to it, okay? Um, so when you allow people to, um, or, or even people participate in, or whatever, they just send and retweet whatever the secular media says about the church without even giving a thought about its accuracy or what they're saying when they do that. Um, you know, I remember when um, COVID and all this stuff was going on in the early days, and having people talk about how anti-science and anti-health, well, you say you care about, you know, people, but then you're still meeting in church when you're not supposed to be, okay? Somebody needed to step up in that gap right there and point out, say, guys, before you, this is a, a non-humble apologetic version of, of this, okay? There's a humble way to put this. I'm not going to put it that way because we're among friends here. Do you realize that Christianity is the leading healthcare provider in the world? It's not even close. Okay, 26% of the hospitals and healthcare centers in the world are owned and operated by the Catholic Church alone. Okay, alone. I'm not counting the Methodists, 
not counting, my kids were born in Dallas Presbyterian Hospital. Anybody give any money to St. Jude's? Okay, every stinking health-based thing in the world, disaster relief, homelessness, adoption, orphan care, human trafficking, every daggum problem in the world, the Christians are out in the front. And anybody who communicates differently is just not being intellectually honest. Or they're ignorant. They want to come up with, with something. Uh, and if you want a book that you can go through this a little bit, I mean, oh, they're anti-education. Really? Okay. Let me give you some colleges that were started by the church as Bible colleges. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth. Harvard, by the way, was a clergyman. So instead of going, well, they're all intellectual, and you would have a hard time if you went back and actually looked at history, not the last 20 years, but all of history, of finding almost any leading intellectual, uh, say before 1850, certainly, that was not a person of faith, and even scientifically. I mean, Newton, Pascal, I mean, just... All the, I mean, you go through Francis Collins right now, National Institutes of Health. The guy that ran that, he just stepped out. But about Christian, I heard him on this campus, shook his hand. He was here doing, did a lecture at the, at the Christian Scholars Conference, and people just kind of, oh, we're just going to kind of like, how about a care for the elderly? Wonder how many elder care homes there are out there where people are caring for senior citizens? How about blood drives? One who gives most of the blood in the world? <laughs> okay, so... At some point, there's got to be, and I know oh, left hand, right hand should know what they're doing. I understand that. Uh, but that's not really talking about this kind of thing. It's okay to point out to people. I know that's what's being said. But we need to at least back up and, and start thinking a little bit more carefully about what we're, what we're doing. Okay. Um, uh, there, there's a book called Confronting Christianity by a woman named Rebecca McLaughlin. Very common sense. It's a great book put in the hands of just regular people, uh, and, and have them uh, do some basic apologetics. But you need to be ready to do it. It's different. It's not science-based anymore. It's experiential apologetics. My life is terrible. If there was a God, why does my life suck? That's the, that's the current one for, say, younger people. Um, if uh, the one I deal with in Religion 101, uh, when I'm teaching Old Testament to kids, is basically, well, I don't agree with what God did. Okay, well, that doesn't mean you're an atheist. It means you're a rebel. An atheist would say, there is no God, so why does it matter? Uh, a, a rebel would say, I don't like God, so I'm not going to follow him. Okay, that's a totally different deal. And then the question becomes, okay, if, if, there, if there is a God, why would you think that you and he would agree on everything? Like, and does it even matter what you think? Like, I don't like Dallas cowboy fans, but that doesn't mean they don't exist, right? <laughs> so you can't just say, I don't like people, therefore, you know, and so then the question becomes, okay, is my criticism of all Christians or this, is that, does that stand up if it's put to any scrutiny? And we just don't, we just don't hold people to the same standards uh, that, that are being held elsewhere. Um, I mean, most segregated hour of the week is 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. Really? Christianity is by far, this is an inarguable fact, the most diverse ethnically religion in the world. It's not even close. Far more diverse than Islam, far more diverse than Hinduism, far more than Buddhism. 
all over the world, the fastest growing parts of, of the world right now. You know what the fastest growing country is right now for Christianity on a percentage basis? Iran. Iran, right? China, uh, they think it's growing so fast there that somewhere around 2050 they're going to have more Christians in China than they do in the U.S. I say praise God. I think it's awesome, right? But you wouldn't know that kind of a thing uh, if you were, you were going to do it. i got to hustle because we're almost out of time. Farm to table staffing. You probably can gather this. There aren't enough pastors coming in, being trained, people feeling called to be able to do it. The answer to your future from a, a staffing standpoint is in your pew. And people who can grow their own food are going to win the day long term. Uh, if you go out and try to go to the grocery store, you're going to have food, we're going to have food shortages everywhere. So find the answer, and that doesn't mean go find the best, nicest person. You, I mean, go when you see a high upside young person. Our worship pastor, who in my opinion is probably the best vocalist walking this campus right now, she's 22, we hired her at 19. Okay. Um, and that was risky, but she had a solid church background, uh, had seasoned people around her, and um, we were looking to have some younger faces on the stage, and she has absolutely killed it, just absolutely killed it for three years so far. Um, but from within the church, uh, our youth pastor came from within the church. Uh, we've got a couple of interns that are kind of in pastors in training is what we're calling them, and, and kind of working them through. Um, let's see, trying to, going through your staff, our staff, you... Uh, within the church, I guess, because you helped start the church with me. Uh, DJ is on the, is a co-founder with me. He's on the team. And we, we, we've gone and gotten a couple of people from outside that, that are from bigger churches, so they, we had more people who knew how to systemically organize things. But our commitment in general is to go outside only when we must. But we should be having farm-to-table kind of stuff all the time, or we're not, we're not really discipling people and growing leaders among us. Um, Finding Athens. What I mean by that, think about Acts 17 and Paul going to Athens. He's supposed to be on lockdown and not going anywhere, and he goes to Athens. And he's heartbroken at what he sees. He sees the idolatry in the city, but he doesn't leave. He doesn't say, you know, I'm tired of living in California. I'm moving to Florida, right? He goes, I'm leaning into it, and this is bothering me, so I'm going to go engage. And so he, he puts himself intentionally in the middle of, of the marketplace. So we were, I wouldn't say we were a suburban church, we were kind of like right in that part that most cities have that's funky between downtown and the suburbs. Uh, and we moved downtown right on, a, right on a corner to develop a downtown corner that was abandoned, do some good for the city. And the model that we're using uh, just quickly is one in which we choose to cohabit with our neighbors. All right, so we have a secular coffee house owned by pagans in the lobby, okay? Uh, knowing that that's going to cause problems, especially on Sundays, right? But it's a way that in which we are forcing ourselves to engage the the marketplace, finding ways to get yourself there and, and engage it instead of running away from it. All right, um, churches, they're they're just eventually we're going to reach the our own shores, backing away from things, and, and have to get in boats and leave. Okay, we have to find a way to love the city again. And, and appreciate and love and honor people uh, where they are and do actual evangelism. Not growth by reproduction, not, not growth by, you know, church transfer growth from the city church to the, to the suburbs. We've got to get back in the cities again. 
and then this is the, you have to be able to outsuffer people. And that sounds really morbid, um, but to go back to Friedman, um, uh, you got it. You just have to be able to suffer. When you do it, any change you make will hurt. So you have to be able to do that. You have to be willing for people to criticize you. You have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing for people to say you're stupid. You have to be willing for them to say you're a liar or whatever because you, you say this about Christians and they're really awful and you say they're great. And, you know, and they're, they're, they can be both. They can be awful and they can be great, right? But, but what you say about Jesus is, is going to cause friction with the world. And if it never does, then you're probably not really preaching Christ. You're preaching something else. There will be friction. And so instead of going, oh, oh, no, they're upset with us, we should stop. Sometimes that means, no, what we're doing is something that God really has called us to do, so we're going to stand here and we're going to take the, the heat from that. Um, i got time for one more rant. Uh, um, the, the, the one, if I had to pick one group, and I, I guarantee you this is going to go with like a lead balloon, but that's okay. The group right now that we're kind of targeting, um, we're seeing the growth in 18 to 24 uh, for the most part in our church, which is awesome. But the group that I think is being overlooked by most churches right now, men. Everybody's saying, no, 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 men have all the power. No. It is more confusing to be a man and to be raising young men right now than ever before. And nobody's paying attention to them. All right? So when you go to what problem can we solve for people? People don't know what to do with their sons right now. And so we're kind of looking at that and noticing that and saying, because, because men right now are being told masculinity itself is toxic. I know what they mean when they say toxic masculinity. There's a form of masculinity that can be toxic, but that's not how it's being heard. How it's being heard is being a man is a bad thing. You were essentially a, a colonialist uh, in every sense of the term, you're to blame for most of the wars in the world, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so guys are coming up very confused. You have all the gender identity questions being foisted on kids. You have um, rampant pornography abuse in, among young men. They're introduced to it now at, you know, first, second grade, not 12, 13, 14, you know, when, when it used to be only on paper and you'd have to go to a bookstore or something like that. And they have it on tap on their phones, anywhere they want to go. Um, and so young men right now, and I think we're seeing the fruit of that. You can start seeing it when you see some of these awful things that happen in society. Nine times out of 10, it's a, it's a under 30 male. And that's something that I just think the church has a unique spot to be able to kind of go, okay, what does a godly man look like? And then to be clear about what that looks like. And we can do both at the same time. We can honor our sisters. And, and write whatever we need to do there while we say, look, it's not better to be a woman than it is a man. There, there's something beautiful about being male as well. And, and we want to encourage you to, to take the parts that God put in you when he created you the way that he did to, and, and lean into that and bring the gospel to bear on who you are. And if we can't do that, I think, I think we're headed for a lot of trouble down the road, guys. So again, these, these were findings. I didn't get into process. I didn't get into uh, why, uh, why you know, we, we, I ended up coming to these conclusions. And they're based on, uh, you know, we've tested them some firsthand in our own model. 
All right, so um, there were reasons for this and everything else. So I got one minute, two minutes for any questions that you guys may have. Uh, God bless you guys. Thank you for coming.